BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Well, we got to get down to business. It is Thursday, May 12th. And this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today in the program, Legal Eagle, Ace Attorney, JC, Jim Coogan. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Take a Stand Thursday, and here's why. Great article in today's Bright One. I urge everybody to read a Chicago Sun-Times, home-delivered as always, a joint uh, effort. You know, the Sun-Times, uh, wait, let me get it right. WBEZ took controlling interest of the Chicago Sun-Times, so, so now they're joining uh, forces. It's quite an operation they got there, T. Got to say, they got some, <laughs> a lot of talent on that team. And I say this, I'm being fair. Uh, you know, I got a lot of love for both uh, operations, uh, even if BEZ did not uh, even look at Dennis's resume. Yeah. And uh, no. I got to say, both of you, uh, I left my uh, water jug there uh, at the Sun Times. If you could put Oh, at the Sun Times, our studio? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, our old bright ones. Oh, I love that studio. I'll be there Just to pick, the I'll be there to pick the it up platform. next week. Yeah, okay. I think they may have changed the lock since the last time you were there, D. Uh, anyway, outstanding article. I urge everybody to read it. Uh, Nader Issa, uh, sometimes education reporter, and Sarah Carp, legendary. Yes, she's earned that uh, status. Legendary WBEZ uh, education reporter. They're talking about the teachers union election could shape schools, city for years. And there's a photograph of the three candidates who are running for president. Uh, and that would be uh, Stacey Davis Gates. Yes, that's Stacey Davis Gates, good friend of the Ben Jarofsky Show. She's being challenged by members first candidate Mary Esposito Ustrabowski and Darnold Dowd of the Real Caucus. And so people are going, Ben, you got to take a stand. You got to weigh in this. I've had people from both sides, all sides, are urging me to do so. And each time they urge me to do so, I go, no way. Not going to do it. <laughs> Not going to take a stand. You know, every now and then, I got to shut my big mouth. I did it with the reader and Len Goodman. I thought it was for the good of the team that I did that. Keep that big mouth shut sometimes. Only get myself in trouble. Uh, but in this particular case, I got a lot of love. Everybody knows that for Stacey Davis Gates. Uh, dear friend of the show, comes on all the time, speaks her mind. Uh, great guest. I always tell people, you may not like Stacey Davis Gates, but if you were the host of a podcast, you would love her. <laughs> yes. Um. So, yeah, I, I really like what Stacey Davis Gates and the union has done. They've been the voice of progressive Chicago. Uh, they put a spotlight. This really goes back to the days of Karen Lewis, who uh, was Stacey's predecessor uh, before Jesse Sharkey, of course, uh, putting a spotlight on the TIF program, uh, championed uh, the cause of spending them more money more equitably. Got a lot of love and respect uh, for that caucus. On the other hand, it's an eternal union matter. And I have some friends, uh, people I know on the other coalition sides. And so I'm just not like feeling this one D in terms of like taking a strong stand. You know, I, um, I just as soon let the teachers decide this one. And I'll just say this teachers, you know, this is, it's a tough decision that you're facing, but I just want to tell you something that your union has unfairly, in my humble opinion, been vilified by powerful forces in the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois uh, who use it as a scapegoat, who use it as a scapegoat to try to undercut any th kind of progressive legislation. Just, just today, for instance, in the, in the Chicago Tribune, the, the conservative editorial board of the Chicago Tribune talking about the ward map, uh, and how a compromise was forged uh, in which the Latino caucus essentially abandoned its principle or its declaration that they uh, hold out for two more um, Latino majority wards. 
and cut a deal with the Black Caucus. It looks as though that uh, the map compromise map will pass uh, in that article. Declaring that as a terrible deal for the city of Chicago. Who did the Tribune blame it on? The Chicago Teachers Union. They talk about unions exercising undue influence, including the Chicago, Chicago Teachers Union. The only union they mentioned. So, yes, your union has been targeted, and not just in Chicago, throughout the country. Teachers unions are always being bashed. They're used as scapegoats. They're convenient scapegoats. I have many theories as to why this is so. My first theory is that because it's a union primarily of women employees and they think they can get away with it in a way they don't think they can get away with it with firefighters union or the police union. Right now we're about to uh, uh, build a casino in the city of Chicago to fortify our police and firefighters union. And I stand by that 100%. I believe those pension funds uh, should be fortified. You know, this is a promise we made to firefighters and police. So we're building that uh, casino to fortify those pensions. I believe when the money is spent to build the casino, the, the, the actual amount of money will, that we get from the casino deal won't really offset the amount of money it took to build a casino. So we're going to have to raise property taxes anyway. That's what I think. But my point is I don't see the demonization of firefighters and police unions going on the way I see it going on with the teachers union. So my, I would say this to all teachers involved. You make your decision. If you think CTU's current leadership is too radical, too extreme, if you think they should concentrate more on, God, this is um, an old argument I've heard, bread and butter issues, just negotiate salaries, just negotiate uh, time off policies, whatever else then that's how you should vote. If you don't think they're radical enough, apparently there's a faction that doesn't think they're radical enough, then that's how you should vote. But don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself into thinking that overnight, a change at the top of the teachers union will change the attitude of elected officials in the state of Illinois and in the country, particularly in MAGA and the Republican Party. Don't fool yourself into thinking that that will change them from using teachers unions as a tool or a weapon to undercut any kind of progressive legislation. They've gone too far on this front. And I remember Rom sitting Karen Lewis down. I wasn't there, but Karen Lewis told me about this when she was first elected. I'm excuse me, when he was first elected, he was still the mayor elect and they sat down and they had dinner some restaurant downtown, and he essentially told her, this is what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to accept what I'm telling you. There'll be charters coming. We're going to be laying off teachers. We're going to be uh, privatizing more uh, teacher uh, schools, meaning be less me- members in your union, and you're going to have to sell this uh, to your union. And she resisted that. Uh, and her resistance really put a target on the teacher's union that Bruce Rauner was hammering away at. We still see the forces hammering away at it. Ken Griffin's hammering away at it. And Wisconsin, Scott Walker, et cetera, and so forth. So I just want to tell teachers, it's your election. It's your union. I don't like people coming in from the outside telling me how my Chicago Reader local should vote. Not that anybody ever would. So it's your election. But I'm just going to tell you this. If you think this is going to change the targeting of teachers union as a, uh, making them into uh, like a boogeyman that's supposed to frighten people. It's like, and they've already used it. They've created, they turned it into this dog whistle. You think that's going to change by just changing a president? I think it's going <laughs> to, I think you're fooling yourself. I think that uh, this is a long fight and anybody who stands up for the rights of teachers and by standing up for the rights of teachers stands up for the rights of the kids. Those teachers teach is going to be in jeopardy of being targeted just the way this current leadership of the Chicago Teachers Union is. All right, we got a great show today, and I'm looking at the man, the myth, the legend, who will be leading the conversation, uh, Ace Attorney Jim Coogan. Jim, I just nobody can see that shirt. It must be casual Thursday at Dwyer and Coogan because you're starting to look like me, Jim. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's hot outside, Ben. Yeah, it is hot outside. Jim is wearing, I think it's a Hawaiian shirt. 
but you're looking very dapper in that shirt anyway, nonetheless. Uh, all right. Uh, Jim is a, a good sport. He's the legal analyst of the Ben Jarofsky show as such. Uh, we pay him a fortune to come on and I uh, give him homework assignments. He's got to read cases. He's got to read analysis of cases. Uh, the man is a trial lawyer, ladies and gentlemen. I have asked constitutional questions to su- Supreme Court decisions. He works hard for his money on the Ben Jarowski show and appreciate uh, your efforts, Jim, very much. Uh, you know what's on my mind. It's on your mind as well. And uh, that is the end of Roe v. Wade as we know it. Um, the decision from 1973 that protected uh, a woman's right uh, to have an abortion under the uh, the notion that uh, there's privacies, uh, there's privacy rights that govern what a woman does with her body. Uh, and it's a draft. Make that clear. It's a draft of a decision that was authored by uh, Justice Samuel Alito. Apparently, four other justices have signed on to it, but the draft has not been finalized. Uh, they, as I understand it, Jim, they've not had an official vote on it. So this is all preliminary. But I don't know. Let's just start with that one. Do you think, what's the likelihood in your uh, humble opinion uh, that by releasing this document, it'll somehow or other alter uh, this decision itself? Well, alter the decision, probably not. I, I think you're right, and there's been a lot of uh, a lot of discussion, a lot of theorizing. At best, we can call this theorizing as to the motivations of whoever it was that leaked it. I thought it was – I was a little bit surprised. Uh, certainly, it was a meaningful development when the court itself – verified that that was a valid real draft that had been released to Politico so quickly to, I don't know, I guess if, if they, they had the option to say nothing, they certainly, I suspect would not have been dishonest and said, this is not a real draft, but you don't have to deny it. You could just not make any comment on it. Um, Because I'm not sure what other function that really serves it certainly doesn't calm down the discussion or the public reaction to it. Um, like you might otherwise have a government official confirm that something is being discussed or, or what, just to get ahead of the story and manage public reaction to it. doesn't really serve that purpose. If anything, it inflames public reaction because it confirms that this is where votes had already lined up. So it's interesting to wonder what the motive was for that. But the most compelling motivation that one could come up with for releasing this is exactly what a lot of legal commentators have already remarked on, which is keeping the votes where they are, keeping, (laughs) keeping the justices in the pen, so to speak, by uh, stirring up reaction from every, every advocate who had already been uh, banging the drum for this for 20, 30, 40, or 50 years, depending on who we're talking about. So to stir up as intensive a response as possible ahead of time to make sure that this remains a five to four decision in favor of uh, obliterating a a right that it has existed in the law for 50 years. And I would argue is a real legitimate right in the first place. um, I, I think that has to be the only reason for doing it. And so there's, that's part of the answer to your question as to how that happened or why it happened. And I don't really know. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I'd be curious to hear a compelling, I haven't heard one, but a compelling theory for why it would be anybody else, whether it was a law clerk or a staff member who doesn't have strong opinions one way or the other, unlikely. And why would somebody who is against this decision, who believes that, uh, that these rights should remain in place, I really don't understand what good it would do them to be leaking this. When again, we have to back to basics. I think you've mentioned this on shows since, that you've had since last Monday. It's really never happened before. So this this is a pretty it's it's an astounding, remarkable watershed thing, especially when it happens to one of the most uh, you know the thing. Can I I need to do a, a little Ben Jarowski tangent here? It drives me crazy when this issue is framed as a battle or a divisive issue in the United States when it's really not, not politically speaking. The only reason why it's a serious, uh, it, it's debated as a policy question 
is because a number of states that are controlled by oftentimes a minority of their actual political constituents, but gerrymandered in such a way that those that several of their people are completely immune to both primary elections and, and real elections. Those are the states that keep passing these laws like Mississippi passed this, the, the law that's at issue in the Dobbs case or Texas or Alabama. They've, I mean, they've been doing this since Casey came out in the nineties and they did it before that to create the controversy for Casey. But this is a, it's a phony issue. It's not a legitimately debated issue when 75% of America believes that there should be some protection for women to have access to this care or put a different way that it shouldn't be made criminal to access this care. It's not a real legitimate debate. There's not an urgency. There's not a legitimate urgency to be revisiting something that's been part of our jurisprudence for 50 years. So uh, I, I almost called it a divisive issue, but I really I don't want to say it that way because I think it lends credence to a false interpretation of what we're even dealing with here. Because yeah. what we're dealing with here is fanaticism. And the fanaticism, it only has a voice because of positions of power that are occupied by people that probably wouldn't hold those positions if it wasn't for the level to which that minority is vocal and well-funded because look, we've, we've commented on this. You've, you've talked about this with other guests, particularly David Ferris, who is excellent. And you guys give great political science commentary. There's a, there's an unholy union. If there ever was one between very powerful interests who are very, who have a lot of money, but don't have a lot of allies and who are able to, you know, sort of glom onto a religious movement that's been around in this country basically since its founding. You know, we used to have these these weird little uh, uprisings of religious fervor in the in the mid 1800s and the early 1900s. That's where the temperance movement came from. It was a religious based thing. So there's always 20 to 30 percent of the country who wants to be very religious about things, uh, puritanical or or whatever that that old urge is. And it's taken different forms with different religious movements. Now it's Christian conservatism that are mostly evangelical, but that's, that's it. That those folks are grossly overrepresented both in the Senate and in the number of States that are willing to pander to them by passing these preposterous laws. I mean, the Texas law is bonkers having people go around and we, you know, we've forgotten about it because it's been subsumed by so much other news. That was a case where the Supreme court allowed it to be in place but didn't even bother to have a decision that actually explained the rationale that justified why you should have basically licensing everybody in the state of Texas to be a bounty hunter, to go rat out somebody who not only was involved in the actual care, but in any way facilitated it. I mean, the, the notion that that's not way too broad for a statute to, to what, to get like an Uber driver or the, the pilot of a plane that somebody got on to go to a different state to get an abortion where it, it wasn't so restrictive as I think Texas might have like three clinics in a state that's bigger than most of the rest of the 48 states combined geographically. I mean, it's, uh, so anyway, that's my tangent. <laughs> no, it's a great tangent. <laughs> and that's uh, why we find ourselves in this position. It wouldn't, yeah. even, we wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for this. We wouldn't be here if we didn't have, states that were gerrymandered and, and pandering to their religious base like Mississippi. We wouldn't be here if the Electoral College did not enable Donald Trump to be president in spite of losing by more than 3 million votes to Hillary Clinton, who was already a very unpopular candidate on her own. And we wouldn't be here if the, the Supreme Court itself hadn't been gerrymandered, uh, rigged, whatever word you want to use, or packed, but packing the court by holding a seat open in spite of all tradition, rationale, or any other procedural rules in the Senate to allow a guy who only served in the White House for four years to appoint three different justices to the Supreme Court. I mean, the, the number of things that come together here. And then we also have the first substantial leak in the history of the Supreme Court that's been around for 220 years is almost, I mean, it makes sense to interpret all this as we're living in a Margaret Atwood prequel then, because that's, that, <laughs> it seems too much like a movie or a, or a, or a Netflix series uh, in the first place. And then you, you think about it and put all that context there. That was a great riff. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I was taking notes on that. And 
you're absolutely correct. Uh, the, <laughs> there is no majority here that is uh, on the side of this decision. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, my guess of it, uh, Jim, we'll get into some of the other issues uh, that are connected uh, to the privacy protection, but uh, in including the rights of uh, couples, married couples to have contraceptives uh, or uh, gay couples to uh, have uh, sex in their heart and their own homes. Um, but uh, you're right there. Uh, our government has been hijacked. Uh, the rules that govern the process of electing representatives and senators uh, and presidents is set up in such a way as it benefits clearly <laughs> the Republican side. And this is the result. Uh, and I'm not even certain how popular this ruling, this proposed ruling would be, Jim, with voters in a Republican primary. You know what I'm saying? And I so like, for instance, the guy we talk about on this show all the time, Ken Griffin. I have no idea what Ken Griffin's position is. The man who funds the Republican Party in the state of Illinois and funds Republican candidates throughout the country. I have no idea what his position on uh, abortion is. Maybe he's uh, uh, made a comment about it in the past that I'm unaware of. Uh he, uh, he's certainly funding here a candidate here in Illinois who's trying <laughs> to duck and dodge every way he can to avoid taking a stand. I'd be Richard Irvin. So your point's a, a, an excellent one. Uh, it, before we leave for the moment the, the aspect of who leaked it um, and get to the, uh, the substance of the legal argument, if there is a substance, uh, I, I, I'm fascinated by that, too. I realize it's a secondary issue, Jim, and it's not as important as the ruling itself uh, and the political reality that you just described. But I, I, I would have to bet I welcome an investigation because I, if I had a bet, I would bet it would, be, it would have come from someone on the right. If I had a bet, and it's just because it just it, it, they're the ones who clearly, in my humble opinion, benefit from it uh, in, in in by locking in those uh, five votes. Um, so we'll see. Uh, but it, it is funny. I think you get a kick out of this, how McConnell and other Republicans are trying to make the leak the issue to divert attention from. Uh, all right, let's get down to it. The legal justification. Uh, for getting rid of Roe v. Wade. Why don't you do your best to, as uh, objectively as you can, uh, explain what is um, the, le the legal underpinning of this uh, coming out of the mind of Justice Alito, and then we'll delve into uh, whether there's any, uh, it has any justification. So take it away. Yeah, this, this gets back to something we've talked about a lot on this show when we've done constitutional analysis and uh, I, I think it, it kind of, in a way, this becomes the culmination of a 40-ish year effort of conservative legal scholars to create, um, a, to create a template for legal reasoning that's based upon this notion of textualism and originalism, uh, something that doesn't really appear in the early cases. I mean, you don't, you look to the early John Marshall court, you don't see textualism or originalism as a notion or a rationale or something that's somehow a, a longstanding legal tradition. It, it arose in the, the late, in the mid to late 1900s uh, in the 20th century. And the, I think that the ingenious um, thought process behind creating this thing is to create a rationale that sounds and dresses itself up as something that has the, the trappings of legitimacy and also gives, gives the user, uh, even if we're just talking about a senator or somebody who's, who's spouting off on their thoughts about a confirmation for a judge to the Supreme Court, it gives that person not only the trappings of legitimacy, but also a very easy way to delegitimize whoever it is that they don't like. 
because they can say, well, these are, this is just another one of those liberal judges that wants to make up the law as they go along and, and is all touchy feeling and, and thinks that the law could change with whatever the public present popular sentiment is and is not rooted in history and is not rooted in tradition and is not rooted in anything. I believe in textualism. I believe in the founders. I believe in the original interpretation of the constitution. It's, it's very creative in the sense that the law, the American uh, Anglo uh, United States legal tradition is built on precedent. We build on older cases. We build on uh, theories or styles of interpretation or, you know, like if you're trying to decide whether something is a legitimate statute, meaning that the legislature came up with a law, does it comport with the constitution? You have to look to something. So the, the legal tradition that we live in, in 2022 in the United States is one of precedent where things are built upon prior things. And they try to, you know, the, the whole point is if it can stand the test of time, then it has some legitimacy because it holds up to human experience. And at the end of the day, the law is really about one very simple thing then. It's about what feels like justice. Because if it's not, that's what leads to revolutions. That's what leads to people losing elections. That's what leads to, you know, throw the bums out and all the incumbents get, get tossed out on their ear because people feel like this just doesn't feel right. This isn't just enough. But at the, at, the, at the base of this, you go back to, um, and I'll, you know what, I'll, I'll give a shout out to Norm Goldman, who used to have a radio show that would broadcast in a lot of places, but it also broadcast on WCPT. I know that's not necessarily your favorite <laughs> station, but it was on here in Chicago for many years. He was, he would often, he was a lawyer by trade and would cite that uh, the, the basic idea is Republicans, very strong-willed Republicans with um, an eye toward, like extremists is is a different way of saying it, understood that you can control things that are unpopular by controlling the levers of power. So if you combine these two things, number one, having the levers of power, like we talked about earlier, gerrymandering districts so that you can have extreme politicians who are never subject to ever having a legitimate uh, primary and they can spout off the craziest pro-life uh, propaganda that you can imagine, controlling the levers of power, but then also having a legal justification that you can wrap around that with originalism. It's basically a way to, to undo the popular will any way you want. If you think about that, but that's been something that's been going, they've been building towards this because it takes a long time. This is, you have to be a fanatic. You have to have something that's really, that you're very passionate about that there's money behind and build it for a very long time. It took a long time to get to this particular court, this extremist court at the Supreme Court. And it took a long time to, you know, basically indifference by a lot of middle of the road folks who now find themselves frustrated by the ineptitude of Democrats, but afraid of the craziness of Republicans who think, well, government will generally just work. Then you realize it's kind of been hijacked. So this, none of this would really be happening if it wasn't for the, the two of the, the, those two things coming together. But you asked about the legal rationale behind this. It's all about originalism. But in this case, uh, because this, this ca- the, the original, uh, well, it's really not the original case. This, this, the, the rationale behind the privacy right expressed in Roe and upheld in Planned Parenthood versus Casey uh, developed out of the Griswold case, which was about contraception. So we will, I'm sure we'll talk about that because that's definitely one of the things that is impl- implicated by this decision. But Judge Alito, Justice Alito, had to go back pretty far to justify the notion that something that's been a legal right or a protection for women for 50 years isn't old enough or the fact that it was previously upheld must also be thrown out. You got to dive pretty deeply. And once you create this phony legal analysis, and I really believe that that's what it's just, look, it's a legal analysis dressed up to justify doing whatever you want. I'm sorry, but that's really what I believe it to be. Then he says, you don't have any tradition or any longstanding tradition built into the country's history. I assume that means prior to 18 or 1783 or 1790 or something of a right to contraceptive abortive care, which by the way, 
is I don't I think that's completely erroneous. People have been having abortions as long as there's been any kind of rudimentary medical efforts to control what's happening with a pregnancy. So that it's it's really just false. But I guess you get to the other issue. You know, back in 1790, women didn't have a right to vote that was protected. And they didn't do a lot in the Constitution when it came to public health initiatives or or even saying because, you know, think about the rudimentary notion of uh, nature of medical care back then. So they didn't go out of their way to say that, oh, by the way, the federal government doesn't have a or must stand in the way of. And there is a federal right to privacy when it comes to decisions between you and your physician. They didn't do it because it wasn't really the focal point. I mean, it wasn't something that was debated back then. They were more concerned about just how power was divided up in generally or in general and whether the new government could survive all the little squabbles that destroyed the first government that we had after we gained our independence from uh, England. So whether or not they were going to actually write either in the Constitution, very unlikely because the document itself doesn't speak to these rights, or in the first few rights that were that we referred to as the Bill of Rights, the amendments to the Constitution, medical care, and especially women's medical care, was not something that those guys were going to comment on. So it's like a layup. You're a, you're a basketball junkie. I mean, of course you're not going to find any, any longstanding tradition that's built into any of those decisions. It's the easiest thing in the world to write if you want to just completely disregard the rest of those factors that we just, that I just mentioned. Yeah. I, uh, there was a fascinating article. I don't believe I sent this one to you. My negligence, uh, by the great Linda Greenhouse who, uh, covered the Supreme court for the New York times for years. I mentioned, I mentioned this in my conversation with Romano. She's freaking brilliant. And, uh, she analyzed the original row. Uh, and she talked about, she made the, the obvious point that it was, uh, all men on the Supreme Court at the time. Uh, and she said that women were not the issue, believe it or not, uh, in Roe. It had to do with relationships between doctors and patients. Right. Uh, and this gets to the heart of what what's private. And I, I find it staggering on many levels, the hypocrisy of the Re- Republican Party right now, which says they have an inalienable right not to take... <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just so sad. Not to get a shot uh, to get, you know, that's their right. That's their fundamental right. Uh, And you can't tell us we don't have that right. And you can't tell me I can't have a private conversation with my own doctor uh, that doesn't deal with Dr. Fauci or whatever other doctor you're putting up. Uh, But then when it comes to abortion, they want to regulate what doctors can do and say to their patients. And the original row had dealt with that, that original decision dealt with that uh, fundamental uh, right that doctors and patients have to confer about what's in the best health interest of, in this case, a woman. And so now, apparently, uh, Scalia's got four other justices to agree that that fundamental right does not exist that you can dictate to a doctor what he says to a woman, that you can dict- dictate to a nurse the information she gives to a woman. And they've been whittling away with this, Jim, forever by like telling doctors and nurses, you have to say X, Y, Z, that abortion is bad. You have to say that abortion is bad for your mental health. You have to say that there's alternatives to abortion. And now they're just f- flat out saying you can't, not only can't you give an abortion, but you could be probably, depending on the states, uh, put to, put in jail or punished. And so I'm, it, to me, I feel as though they're blowing up. Like the, just what makes our country our country. Sure. And, you know, I just, I mean, I'm, I'm stunned. I guess I shouldn't say I'm stunned, but I'm really disappointed that libertarians aren't on the front lines here. Uh, First Amendment types aren't on the front lines here. Sure. That everybody who says Joe Rogan has the right to say what he wants is not on the front lines here. You know, uh, I feel like I've been betrayed again. Uh, 
and it's I guess it gets into the the whole issue of you know that there's something sacred here, and this is what Alito was trying to say that a life. So then ultimately it comes down to, are you committing murder? And they're trying to impose that notion on everybody in this country, Mm -hmm. uh, Jim. And I think most Democrats want to stay away from that question. You know what I'm saying? They don't want to get into that question because they don't know how to really don't know how to argue that question. And that's where we're at right now. So let's talk now. Let's draw the, the next, uh, step, which is to take this decision and apply it to other issues. And you already mentioned Griswold, which is the case out of Connecticut. And I forget when it was either late fifties, or early sixties, but it was yep. before Roe. Uh, I believe the Planned Parenthood representing by Griswold sued the state of Connecticut. This is my memory of it over the issue of whether uh, a law was uh, constitutional that prohibited, oh God, what a freaking law, prohibited married couples from using contra- <laughs> contraceptives uh, in their own homes. Mm-hmm. So isn't that the one where, um, was it Douglas or I can't remember which justice said, if a right is not enumerated in the Constitution, it doesn't mean it. the Constitution doesn't protect it. I believe that's the central one of the central points in one of the decisions there. So do you think uh, that Griswold's next, that once they get rid of a right of privacy regarding a woman's conversations with her physician or nurse, that they're going to come after Griswold? Uh, Well, if they're going to as far as what's next, uh, I think that they would start, they being the proponents of restrictions on privacy over your own sexual life. I think it would start with contraception care with some kind of exception for married couples because it's more politically palatable. It's uh, still a rather invasive point of view. Um, I'm being I'm being very facetious here, but married couples would would probably think, "Are you crazy? That what do you mean that we can't make decisions over family planning?" When I mean we're talking about contraception, not even abortion anymore. So we're talking about all sorts of things that are non-invasive, not really medical procedures, unless you consider the implantation of an IUD a medical procedure, and I don't think that that's how doctors look at it. Um, But I I need to mention one other thing just to respond to the the stuff that you were saying just a second ago. In order to get to the point where you can build even a, a, a very small minority of the country that's so angry about this, you have to keep in mind that especially folks who, as you point out, would be so hypocritical given all the things that they are, are very, very vocal and obsessed with when it comes to privacy rights. What would it take to convince all those folks that, that this issue is not about a decision being made by a doctor in consultation with their patient in, in conjunction with and consistent with good medicine and morals and ethics of the medical profession? What would it take to get to that point? And, and my answer to that question is a caricature. In other words, the people that they think are, are doing this stuff, that's why they love these phrases like abortion on demand to make it sound like this is some frivolity. I, and I'm not saying that there isn't somebody out there who has had several abortions and just really doesn't think through their, they're just, they have bad judgment and, and doesn't think this through. I'm not saying there isn't somebody out there like that, but is that, is that some meaningful problem that we're trying to solve in this country? We need to, we need to change the laws to deal with that. That's what's happening. Cause at the end of the day, if you're having something, it's a very serious medical procedure. Being pregnant is a very serious medical event. I don't know why that's always forgotten in this debate, but it can cause all kinds of havoc to, to a woman's body medically that, that can be permanent. If it's a, if it's a pregnancy that they didn't plan for, didn't want, and is, is now that they're now stuck with, there's all sorts of collateral consequences there, and that's the reason why this is supposed to be a medical decision. But the only way you can get to that point and have these people feel like there is no hypocritical position or that they're not completely uh, belying all their other beliefs about privacy or the idea that, that it's, uh, you know, I have a privacy right not to have a mask on my face, but you don't have a privacy right to have the government not interfere in a decision like this. 
uh, is by creating a, a caricature that that is evil because they have to it has to be somebody that they don't know has to be a cartoon character has to be someone that isn't connected to them and has to be the other and they have to decide that they are morally superior to that person or those millions and millions of women that are getting billions and billions of abortions that they have to stop only by by having that be your boogeyman can you get to the point where you support this in the first place and i think that's an important point to make because that caricature doesn't exist as easily when it comes to some of these other rights so they would so they being again the marsha blackburns of the world the ted cruises of the world they would certainly focus first on homosexual rights gay people's ability to marry certainly is an easy one in their minds because that's maybe 10 to 15% of the population in their heads. They don't, I don't, I think they dismiss or just don't care about the fact that a majority of America actually supports that idea too, that marriage equality, that marriage is not only defined by a religion that you control, that it's a le- it's a legal thing, a secular right and an ability to take advantage of all kinds of secular things like the way you do your taxes or the way your property is titled and, or what you do with your finances and all kinds of other very boring routine things that, only married. These are all the debates that we had around the time when that was up for debate, that this just made no sense to make people's lives harder. If their sexual orientation is not uh, cis straight uh, uh, orientation, why would you, why do that again? Only because it's a boogeyman and they're evil in your mind, but uh, they would start with things that are less popular or, or, or seem like they are uh, attackable, but I don't know why Griswold wouldn't be the ultimate prize. Because, look, if you ask me, and you haven't yet, but maybe you will, what is this really all about? It's about religious theocracy and control. I mean, ultimately, what else would you be doing any of this for? To control women, to control women's sexuality, to control women's sexuality inside or outside and possibly inside marriage, and and they're doing it based upon a religious tradition that they have in their minds, which you know, ultimately not everybody, I mean, nominally the majority religion in this country is some type of Christianity, but practicing devoted religious folks who also believe that the laws should mirror their religious beliefs is not a majority. Yeah. Or should it be? Um, you know, there was this, this thing they did back in the uh, 1790s. Uh, it was actually the first amendment that they created. People love talking about the freedom of speech part, but there's also this establishment clause that says we're not a theocracy. There is a separation between church and state, or at least I believe in one because I think it's extremely dangerous. And I just, I guess it's ironic that uh, we we started with this ridiculous boogeyman of Sharia law about 10 or 15 years ago. And here, here we are enacting it all across the South and the Supreme court's about to bless it. I, uh, I think that, uh, what you're really saying there is you're tying your two uh, themes together, uh, Jim, because when I say, well, what's next from a legal standpoint, what you're really, what your answer is really saying is that, well, what's next from a political standpoint? So where will, and for lack of a better word, I'll just say it MAGA, where will MAGA take this? So they won the right um, uh, to outlaw abortion, criminalize the act, uh, put doctors in jail. Uh, I we'll see where, how far they go with it. You know, will they now move on to women? Will they try to prevent uh, women who leave Texas to go to Illinois to be punished? Uh, we'll see where they go with it. Obviously, it's a relentless crusade. Uh, now, when it gets to uh, contraceptive rights, your your point is very well taken. It's like who will be driving the bus, so to speak? Will it be the most extreme uh, fundamentalists who believe? Uh, Eric Zorn wrote about this today. He had a very good column in, in his uh, newsletter, Picayune Sentinel, uh, that people should be punished for having uh, irresponsible sexual relations. I think that's the word irresponsible, which just means it's sexual relations beyond the act of procreating. Uh, That would be the the only responsible one. So if the real hard nose 
fundamentalists are driving the bus and the Trumps of the world are incapable of resisting them and saying no to them because they're afraid they'll uh, that will break up their base, then I believe you will start seeing laws proposed. This is where it starts, Jim. You'll see laws in states like Alabama or Mississippi or Texas, red states, which will outlaw or severely curtail the rights of people to use contraceptives. Uh, those laws will be challenged. And that's where these fundamental decisions come. Once those laws are challenged, it will come to the Supremes, and we got the five, the big five, <laughs> locked up and ready to go, uh, as you pointed out, by virtue of an electoral college system, by virtue of gerrymandered uh, Congress, by virtue of the fact that the Senate uh, is overrepresented by uh, red states, etc. Um, so what I'm asking you is, do you believe Alito, he kind of like addresses this a little bit in the decision where he says, well, this is just a, this issue only relates to abortion because it deals with life and death. I'm paraphrasing what Alito said, which is sort of his signal. But you talk about, God, these judges are so political. That's like the most political statement I've ever heard. You know, relax, Richard Irvin's of the world, where you, <laughs> you can still get elected uh, with this decision. Uh, so what do you think? Do you think he's going to keep true to his word there, uh, at least as it's written in this preliminary document? Uh, or do you think uh, that will all be forgotten when the next case comes knocking on his door? Well, I don't think anybody reading this believes him when he says that this opinion concerns no other right than the constitutional right to abortion or that I'm looking at the, the language. Nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedent that does not concern abortion. That's very careful language. One thing, you know, even if I don't uh, believe the, the intellectual integrity of a lot of the uh, things that justices say or the way they write, it doesn't mean that they're not very intelligent or that they're, they're not using very precise language. Sometimes it's a, it's a faint or it's just, it's a lie like this, but it's still very precise. This precise language, all it says is that it shouldn't cast doubt on other president. It doesn't mean that other precedent won't also be overruled. It's just saying this opinion doesn't cast doubt on it. I mean, read it for, look at, let's be textualist, Ben. Let's look at exactly what the words say here. All it says is this shouldn't cast doubt on precedent that does not concern abortion, which another way of putting that would be, we can certainly pick and choose which precedent we will like to follow in the future, just like we're doing here. Yeah. And, and me saying that is not invalidated by anything else in a hundred page opinion. I know that I haven't read word for word, but I know that there's, cause he's not bound by it. And, and you know, the other thing that drives us crazy and who are lawyers, it, and I, I think this doesn't, this isn't just for lawyers. This is for people who believe in civil society functioning in a, in a real meaningful way. Anything that you do to diminish the, the faith that people have in the justice part of the justice system mm-hmm. is damaging to the functionality of a democracy. Democracy is, is a participatory process that we all enter into. We don't really willingly do it when we're born because you wouldn't really conceive of it when you're a day old or something like that. But you enter into it, and there's this constructive contract that goes on over time. If you don't believe in it, then it falls apart. So things like this, absolutely, when you when you rip up the notion of precedent from the, the chief constitutional interpretive body in the country, the United States Supreme Court, you damage the court, you damage the law, you damage the people's ability to have faith that the system works the way that it's supposed to. And going back to what I said a few minutes ago, the, the one of the primary goals of any justice system is to create the impression that it actually imparts justice or people won't participate in it. Yeah. So deal. And look, I don't know if maybe, the, the wealthiest backers of the Republican Party for the last 20, 30, 40 years, maybe they're all just secret anarchists and they really want to, they actually want to just destroy the, the whole entire system because continually funding an effort to delegitimize the 2020 election and pretending like the, those efforts are serious and sincere doesn't help. This doesn't help. I mean, the court lost a tremendous amount of credibility when Mitch McConnell did what he did in 
2016 in the first place Man. by holding that seat open. It was so nakedly partisan that there's no only a only a fool or someone who's just lying to themselves would see it any other way. That damaged the court's credibility and sincerity and whether or not you should believe what they're saying. And then within what three years, four years of of creating of of the process of Trump filling these seats, you overturn something that's that's uh, very very established in the system, established in the medical community. And by the way, aligns us with every other Western democracy in the entire world. I mean, criminalizing abortion puts us puts us on a list with like ten countries, all of which are run by despots or fundamental religious zealots. Well. And here we are, the biggest economy <laughs> in the world, with what the fourth largest population. Yeah. But we're having this crazy, stupid debate. It's it's uh. It's a major distraction from real debates that we should be having, and number one. And number two, it, 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 it just hurts everything. And so there's no question that, they, that this language means nothing as far as whether or not the court would also entertain uh, overturning Oberfell and, and, and folks who are not marrying somebody who's uh, of a heterosexual marriage will lose that right, or whether they'll also take away the... the privacy rights for consenting adults yeah. to engage in sexual relations. Um, which by the way, again, going back to whether these things will be popular, there were laws at some point that made it illegal to have sex outside of marriage, even if it was heterosexual sex. Do you honestly think that there's a, a majority of Americans that would support a restriction on that? Or maybe there's enough married people that, that, that want to do it out of spite. That's crazy. That's not, that's, that's crazy politics, Ben. Well, I, and this, uh, okay, so this gets into, it's really a political uh, question because I'm with you, I'm with you uh, totally that uh, these legal opinions are uh, stitched together very cleverly and you're absolutely correct. They're very smart people, you know, uh, and they're, uh, they stitch these uh, legal opinions together to justify whatever political decision they want to make. Uh, and uh, so it, fundamentally all of this, comes down to politics and um so how far can they go and um you know right now there's a debate again eric's column today uh he talked about i believe i'm doing this off the top of my head 30 percent of republicans or 30 percent uh i think it's 30 percent of republicans feel very strongly uh about abortion it's like their single issue I'm screwing this up. It's like 30% of people uh, who are anti-choice, that's like their single issue, whereas it's only 19% for um, people who believe in women's reproductive rights. So that means somebody, uh, some voter goes, well, I like Trump's tax breaks. So, uh, you know, whatever. It doesn't affect me. Uh, I'm too old to have a kid or, you know, I what, whatever the reason. Uh so I'll just look the other way. And so will the most radical element of MAGA lead the Republican Party uh, in the direction of outlawing privacy rights uh, for uh, consenting adults to have sex in their homes? And can they get away with it? I don't know but I feel we're heading in that direction. We're going to find out real soon, Jim, because I really personally don't believe uh, I've seen no evidence that there's any restraint on the part of MAGA to uh, keep the most radical elements from uh, pursuing the most extreme parts of their agenda. And I see no signs of courage on the part of any Republican anywhere to defy the base you can't even get a Republican in the state of Illinois to say that Donald Trump is lying when he claims he won an election that he lost. You know what I'm saying, Jim? So I think it's a scary time for democracy. And these guys, these five justices are tools for a, fan a fanatic extreme that is taking control of the Republican Party. That's how I see it. Your thoughts? Well, if you've watched uh, clips from a CPAC convention or from a Republican convention anytime in the last six years, I don't think the word restraint 
would would come, would pop into your head if you're watching the the circus acts that are speaking in front of these crowds. Um, but I think there's also another element that's that's not entirely unique to MAGA, but is definitely one of their strong traits, and that is that they, they don't seem to think that the law applies to them. I mean, I think that there's this weird divide where folks like Trump, who I can't imagine that he's actually anti-abortion, as you've, I think you went over this in great detail yesterday, and you've mentioned it before on your show, um, given the way that he used to talk about his sexual uh, exploits. But I think that it's almost in their minds, and actually, you know what, this gets to one of the, the fundamental problems with the abortion debate in the United States that I'll mention in a second. Um, they don't think that the law is going to apply to them, so they don't see the risk, and they don't seem to care because they think that it either wouldn't be, they won't be prosecuted or somehow they'll get away with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, now look, there's, other, there's one other factor here presuming that there is still the political will that present presently exists here in, in Illinois, in New York, in Massachusetts, in California, Oregon, Washington, in 20 to 30 states, this won't affect everybody. So it will be a disparate impact. Uh, folks that are of a, of a not popular status with hardcore right-wing ideology are going to suffer in Alabama and Louisiana and Texas, but they're not going to suffer in California because that's not what's going to happen. They're not going to pass these laws in the California legislature. But the other thing that happens is when it comes specifically to abortive issues is it's also, and this is part of the whole disconnect of whether the law applies to them, it's an economic issue. It's a socioeconomic issue. That's one of the things that when I, in my own mind, when I was trying to decide how I felt about this, I was raised Catholic. I was confirmed a Catholic. I, I, you know, I, I believed in those things up to sometime in my twenties when I, started to really question uh, whether the, the dogmatic parts of the religion made any sense. I, although as a, as a Jesuit educated and Vincentian educated person, I'm a big fan of the taking care of the poor and doing things for the, for the good of other people. Those parts I, I like, I guess I'm a cafeteria Catholic in that way. Um, but this is about socioeconomic injustice because a rich woman in Birmingham who has three kids already and doesn't want the fourth kid and it's too, and it otherwise would be in a violation of I'm sure Alabama will have abortions be illegal after like one day or something like that. Her husband's going to fly her to New York or she'll fly to New York on her own, whatever, whoever pays for it. That's not the point. The point is the money is there. Whereas somebody who doesn't have those means and is somewhere out in rural West Texas might have to drive 15 hours to get somewhere where it would be illegal. And then in case anybody finds out, according to how Texas's law presently works, they might still get in trouble. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, given whatever other criminal penalties that'll come next out of the completely out to left field uh, nutball legislature they have in Austin. So this has always been about, I, I, to me, I don't understand why there's not a strong equal protection argument here. Because it's not rich people or people who have at least just enough money to pay for something like that who are going to suffer. It's about the disparate impact that folks, because, you know, they've already made it almost impossible to have an abortion clinic anywhere across the South. There's only one in Missouri. I mean, there's already an enormous amount of uh, hurdles that someone has to overcome just to get access to this if this is something they have to do. And again, in contrast to the caricature, this is not something that most people are all jazzed up about doing. It's a terrible decision. It's a hard decision. This is, this is why it should be between them and their doctor. But that's the other thing. If you're, you're asking me about, you know, what, what part will lead the Republican party politically going forward, the folks who just want lower taxes are, are just fine with indulging whatever wackiness that the zealots are up to. I mean, it seemed that's been clear since day one. And honestly, I think that also includes bringing Trump into the fold. I mean, they realized they needed some sort of buffoon character who can absorb all the attention and loves getting in fights all day long, even though he lets other people actually fight his battles for him. But he pretends like he's a fighter and that he's tough um, and allows that to be a huge distraction. We spent four years of his presidency mostly talking about his tweets while all this other terrible stuff was done at the administrative level. They didn't pass a lot of legislation, at least. That was one positive. But uh, they, they did all kinds of havoc to, to the EPA and to other parts of the government. So 
I think it's all about just having these sideshows, indulging the zealots. I, I really don't know what restraint they would have. I, I can't imagine that there's anything that's, that's, that's out of bounds here. Uh, indulging the zealots. Yes. And, uh, but to close, uh, by saying, uh, as I always do, whenever a guest, uh, says, uh, what Jim just got finished saying, I'm just a broken record in this and I will continue to be, uh, you're absolutely correct. When you say at the moment in the state of Illinois, abortion is legal. It's not carved in stone, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, when you see a lifelong Democrat, a centrist Democrat like Richard Irvin uh, duck and dodge and running for cover uh, on the issue of uh, a woman's right to choose on the issue of reproductive rights. When you see him so terrified of the extremists, the zealots, uh, as Jim puts it, who control the Republican Party, even in a quote unquote moderate state like Illinois, you know that if Republicans take control of the state, they're coming for abortion rights in this state. And I got news for you. I'm going to have a conversation next uh, week. I've already set it up. Uh, Ed Mullins will be coming on the show. We're going to break, take a look at the Supreme Court races in Illinois, state Supreme Court. Republicans, you fall asleep on this issue, ladies and gentlemen. You you'd be surprised what the state Supreme Court can do if it's taking if Maggot controls it the way they control the uh, uh, U.S. Supreme Court. Go ahead, Jim. Well, Where's Ben, just to, you brought this up at the beginning of the show about Richard Irvin and about Ken Griffin and what does he really want? I don't know. I mean, I guess I I honestly think Ken Griffin would be don't know the guy. Don't really have any special insight here, but I just know he's a very wealthy guy. He's probably agnostic about what actually happens with this because none of it's ever going to impact him one way or the other. What does he care? Um, but this is just the pairing of Irvin and his, his running mate, Avery Bourne, yeah. is a perfect example of this unholy alliance. I think you had Kelly Cassidy, the great Kelly Cassidy, was on here just talking about this a week or so ago about her debates with Avery Bourne in, in the state house because – Here's a situation where, I mean, what a weird, <laughs> they're trying to very carefully manage people's impressions of who Richard Irvin is. We both know that. That's why they're doing it primarily through uh, saturating the airwaves with ads and avoiding him being in front of a microphone, which didn't look great the other night, by the way. So here in the era, though, pairing him with somebody who's an extreme anti-choice advocate. So there's like this wink and a nod to the hardcore faction that you described that the single issue voters that are certainly in Illinois, Jeannie Ives had a constituency. They're here. They're not more than 50% of the voters, but they're here. There's a wink and a nod by saying, look, you might not hear what you want to from Richard Irvin. Cause at the end of the day, we're trying to get enough, uh, you know, anti-tax voters from the, from the outer suburbs of Chicago to vote for this guy, but look at his running mate. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, who knows? I don't know if anybody's ever going to get it, pin him down. I don't know. Flannery couldn't do it. I'm not <laughs> sure who's going to be able to pin him down to actually answer questions about that. But I get, I mean, obviously now, now that we're in this new world that just started with Politico's release of this draft, the calls aren't going to stop. He's not going to get any less frustrated at press conferences with people asking him questions because the issue is now on the table. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't when, when, uh, you know, Bruce Rauner and, and Pritz, actually, frankly, Rauner was supportive of reproductive rights. He, he signed a bill that, that, uh, that actually was helpful in that regard. Yeah. He signed the, the he got rid of the trigger law. Right. So just think about this. That was HB4. Terry uh, Cosgrove will be coming on the show too. We're, at, we're just beginning ladies. And gentlemen. But the trigger law would have been, uh, it, it was revoked by HB 40 would have automatically outlawed abortion in the state of Illinois. Uh, if Roe v. Wade was overturned, precisely what's about to happen. Uh, and Bruce Rauner probably, uh, well, there were so many other reasons why he lost. And so I should, but this was one of the reasons uh, he lost. And uh, because he lost, he just, Jeannie Ives ran against him uh, on abortion. And I think she got 47% of the vote in the Republican primary. Uh, and, you know, he just didn't have that solid support that he needed to go going in against um, JB Pritzker. All right. Uh, a little more, a little more of that Carhartt jacket. That would have made the difference. <laughs> I've been saying it for three years now. <laughs> and the motors, don't forget the motorcycle. Yeah. Oh my goodness. The days of Ronner, we had a field day. 
<laughs> with Bruce Rauner as governor. Uh, Jim, thank you very much for taking the time and um, reading all the articles I sent you. We didn't even get into some of the articles that I sent you. We'll save that for another time. I got a feeling uh, this isn't going anywhere, folks. This is, uh, no, this is going to be the political reality. Now, the real interesting thing uh, about the way this has been leaked is whether there's a substantive change we will definitely be talking about that, uh, Jim. If there's a substantive change come June in whatever final uh, decision is released, you know, well, that will be uh, a fascinating topic. Again, more about politics than about quote unquote constitutional law, more about politics uh, than constitutional law. Anyway, Jim, thank you very much. Appreciate you taking the time. It's always my pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me. All right, that's the great Jim Coogan, Dwyer and Coogan, ace attorney, as we like to say. I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois, who's still stuck in Alton, Jim, but he's going to get out of there one of these days. He missed his train, yes? Can I, I'm sorry, I actually do have an announcement. You said the name of the firm. Uh, I should make this public. We will be, uh, we're making a transition of our own. We're, we're this, this could be one of our formal announcements. The law firm is going to be called Coogan Gallagher going forward. Wow. Breaking news in the Ben Jarowski. Hold on. <laughs> well, I wish you get nothing but the best. Uh, who's the Gallagher? I don't think I've ever met Gallagher. Uh, no, Caroline Gallagher. Uh, she's uh, very recently became an American citizen. Originally, originally came from Ireland. Uh, she's been here for maybe 14, 15 years. I know I'm going to say that wrong and I apologize, but uh very, very proud of her for that, but she's also a tremendous lawyer, and I've been lucky to have her as my law partner for uh, about three and a half, four years now. So we're making, we're kind of stepping into the next generation of this and changing the name of the firm. But, but your uh, 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 your basic practice won't change. You'll still be handling the same kinds of cases, correct? Same practice, trial lawyers, mostly injury cases. Yes, sir. Very good. All right. We'll uh, have to make, oh, God, with my dyslexia. <laughs> God, I'm going to have to write that down every single time you come on the show. Uh, all right. Well, congratulations, Jim. I wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much. Uh, and where was I? Oh, yes. I want to thank the man in the middle of the pride of George Alton, Illinois. Without whom this show would be possible. He's still stuck in Alton. But he's coming home tomorrow, ladies and gentlemen. He'll be coming home to Chicago tomorrow. Uh, and as uh, Jim Coogan and uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D. And the D stands for Marvelous. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody.